So as we tune our hearts to focus on our city today, uh, we do so with purpose and we do so uh, for a reason. Uh, we keep coming back to when we talk about our city, kind of a theme passage that drives us towards us. And it's here found in Jeremiah. As a prophet Jeremiah is talking to the people of God, the people of Israel, uh, on behalf of God, uh, through the voice of God. So he's talking to the people, and this is what he says in Jeremiah 29, 7. He tells the people, and seek the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare will determine your welfare. So on the surface, that seems like a very simple passage, right? That it's great for us to seek the peace and prosperity of our city and to pray for it, right? Uh, that almost seems inarguable that we would be called to do that, right? To seek the goodness around us. But there's a lot more depth here to this passage if we dig into it. And first of all, the understanding is that this is written to people, as it says, people who are in exile. It's written to the people of Israel who have been carried off from the place that they wanted to be, and they found themselves living in captivity, living in a place where they had no choice, where they weren't exactly keen on being. So that's a little different than if you're just moving into the neighborhood, moving into the place where you want to be, where you finally get to that spot where you want to be in life and then say, hey, take care of this place that you love. Take care of this place that you want to be around, right? This passage is saying, even when you find yourself in places that you don't want to be, there's something really important that even in those moments, there is something about looking out for the peace and the prosperity and the goodness of those around you, wherever it is that you find yourself. So there's some depth there. But the other thing here is we look, the words peace and prosperity in there, and then in that second part, welfare and welfare, that's actually all the same word in the original Hebrew when it was written, a word that has complicated levels of, of depth in its meaning, but that's the word shalom. Right, we've talked about the word shalom also meaning uh, not just peace and prosperity, but wholeness, uh, being put back together, everything all together the way that it should be. Right? And the interesting thing of pointing out that the word shalom is the same part in the front of that passage, in the back of the passage, is saying that uh, we're out, the things that we want for ourselves are the things that we are to seek for other people. Right? That very wholeness of goodness, the experience of God, the reason that you're probably sitting here in this church gathering today is because there's something in you that's wanting something, some wholeness, some goodness, some fullness from God. That thing that's driving you here today is the thing that if we're wanting that thing, we should find that thing by seeking that for those around us. That our wellness, our wholeness, our shalom is entangled. It's all twisted up in the wellness and wholeness and shalom of those around us. Now that's an interesting concept for us in America today in this land of independence and prosperity, right? Because so often, if we are looking for wholeness for ourselves, we just set out to get that for ourselves. We set out to take care of ourselves and make sure we get the things that we want, make sure we get the things that we need. And so as we set out in the big questions of life, like where, where are we going to live? Where, what am I going to do for my job? Where am I gonna send my kids to school? Or any other complicated question, so often we set out in just seeking our own wholeness and wellness and peace and prosperity and shalom. But this passage is telling us that if we really want to find that thing that we're looking for, we can't just look for it for ourselves. We have to realize that it's tangled up in the wellness of others and pursue that as well. 
which kind of changes things a little bit for us. And so as we focus on our city, we do so because we recognize the wellness of those around us is central to our own experience of God and wholeness and our brokenness. There's one other thing I wanna talk about that if this passage is saying that this is how you find shalom, this is how you find what you're looking for from God is by seeking it also for those around you, then it changes the priority in which we engage our city. Right, because so often in churches, we, we see that, okay, we come here on Sunday gatherings and we take care of what we need for us to get right with God. And then maybe on the side, we go out and we do these things to love our community, right? We do the service project on Saturday to love our city so that we can come on Sunday and do the really meaningful stuff. But if we're to take this passage seriously and understand that our relationship with God is intertwined with the experience of others with God, we realize that the things that we're doing in loving our community are core to that pursuit. And so for us to come today, we are coming here simply to listen today, to take a pulse of how our city is doing, specifically in the areas today, we're gonna specifically look at the areas of neighborhoods and schools to see how things are going. And we do so on a Sunday, taking this time instead of a sermon and whatnot, because we believe this is core to what we're trying to do together here and not simply a side project. Sound good? Okay, we have a couple of guests today. Actually, Thursday night, we had a, a third guest, uh, Karima Fowler, who, was, who has been our city clerk for the city of South Bend. She's done a fantastic job. And she has now transitioned to the chief financial officer of South Bend Schools. So she was with us Thursday, but we have two new guests today. Uh, and I want to introduce our first one, uh, is a friend of mine. She graduated from Notre Dame. She spent 13 years as an architect in South Bend. In 2015, she became the executive director of the Near Northwest Neighborhood, which is my neighborhood. Any other NNN people here? All right, we've got a couple. All right. Uh, she, she and her wife, Sheila, have spent many years uh, loving our neighbors in the city uh, through the Catholic Worker. She is my neighbor and she's my friend. Can you welcome Kathy Schuth? Kathy, thank you for joining me. It's a pleasure. Hi, neighbors. <laughs> uh, Kathy, I think I've known you for several years now. And what I've been impressed is uh, you just have depth to you and intentionality in the things that you do. And that's one of the reasons I was really excited to have this conversation. Uh, tell us, what, what is, I mean, you were an architect and you found yourself in neighborhood work. How did you find yourself, uh, what attracted you to neighborhood leadership? Ryan, this is a, a really in, interesting question in my life, and one it's I realized as I like I spoke to um, earlier this week an architecture student talking about the possibilities of of what it means when you've got like a professional experience that could lead to other things, uh, and it's one that it's a question I'm exploring my whole life. So I, to to kind of bring everybody back in the bare bone strokes of like what has shaped those decisions. I, I want to say that I, I was raised in Bedford, Indiana, which is in southern Indiana. It's a town of 15,000 people. Uh, and my parents divorced when I was 11. And so we ended up in a pretty low-income situation, single mom, four kids, um, and, and kind of a place of not privilege. But then I found myself with the privilege and through scholarships, things like that, being able to go to Notre Dame and pursue architecture, which I pursued because I had no idea what else to do with myself. <laughs> 
Um, I didn't want to give everything up. I loved it all. I loved the art. I loved the math. I loved the English. I loved the everything. And, and it was actually my, my mother, who was a high school guidance counselor, who said, try architecture. It sounds like you can do a lot of those things. And I said, okay. But as I went through that process of becoming an architect and learning what that profession was, I began to realize that I wasn't as excited about the types of work I might be able to do, which would often lead to, I don't know, like going to New York City and working for wealthy families or working for corporations, large corporations or institutions that would be able to afford an architect. And so even in school, and especially maybe at a, and some of you might recognize this, at a place like Notre Dame, when you come in as a low-income student, you really, you know, you're feeling that tension all the time about how do we find a place for this voice of kind of like the everybody of the whole community um, at every step. And so even at Notre Dame, I was really interested in how architecture could be used as service and kind of went out into the world with that. And I think I've been trying to kind of find this place for a long time. So um, I moved back to South Bend. I moved out of South Bend like a lot of Notre Dame folks do. I was from Southern Indiana and went to Notre Dame and said, I'm never going back. I don't know anything about South Bend. But I moved back three years later. Uh, and Gotcha. Yeah, gotcha. Got me. In 2002, uh, and pretty quickly recognized the neighborhood that I moved into, near Northwest neighborhood, as what I thought as one of the most engaging places in the city that was grappling with these questions of kind of place building and community building as service. I saw it perhaps from a faith point of view, but I think as a real interest um, in each other and you know, creating this sense of belonging. So I joined, or kind of begged to be on the board uh, at that time of, of Near Northwest Neighborhood, which is an organization which I can go into a little bit. Um, yeah, so that was about 2005. And then I sat on the board for 10 years, kind of helping support this as I was a practicing architect, uh, but this was like the passion project. And then when the previous executive director, she had served there for 13 years, um, she decided it was time for a change for herself. And I was started, and then at that point, I. I actually started on the committee, you know, that was meant to choose the next director. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> and then very quickly I said, actually, Sneaky. I think I'm going to put my name on that. Take me off the committee. I'm going to throw my name in the ring and, right. and um, stepping into leadership with that, which uh, now I recognize, uh, and the more I talk about it with folks, I recognize is a real place of privilege to be able to grapple with neighborhood issues on the daily and get paid for it. Yeah, love it. So you're the executive director of the NNN, and it's not just a neighborhood or neighborhood association. It's also what's called a community development corporation or a CDC. So, so the organization you head is actually doing development work in the neighborhood. But just first, generally, as a neighborhood, what, a, what is the neighborhood like? It's on the northwest side uh, between Lincoln Way and Portage, if you're thinking of it that way, and, and inside Angela and kind of Diamond comes down. So just that kind of near triangle there. Uh, what is, what's the neighborhood like? What's a, what's, what are the people like? What's the neighborhood like? Yeah, it's, uh, it's, I think, one of the most unique and interesting places in a city like South Bend in that, like you said, it's bounded by Lincoln Way and also by Leaper Park and the river. Uh, it kind of is between downtown and Notre Dame. There's roughly 3,200 residents in the near Northwest neighborhood proper. And it's a very diverse place, both racially and social economically. And I find that that's one of the biggest attractors to people who continue to live there and choose to live there. So it's roughly 50% white, 40% African-American, 10% Hispanic. I mean, those kind of rough numbers. Um, and there are uh, 
both it's a unified neighborhood and there are kind of some mini divides in the neighborhood. The eastern part of the neighborhood is more stable and includes uh, three historic districts and the western part of the neighborhood is, is much less stable. And in fact, if you use Portage Avenue as a dividing line, um, the part that's west of Portage Avenue experiences poverty rates up to 40, 45%. Um, the neighborhood as a whole is was built out between 1890 and 1910, thereabouts. So very, pretty quickly, if you think about like if what an entire neighborhood like that gets built out as, and it was built during kind of a boom period of South Bend. So it was so large houses um, that you can you could tell like have a ton of character, and people are very proud of the near Northwest neighborhood as as a place and the type of spaces that are created. But it's experienced a lot of of disinvestment over the years, specifically uh, with population loss starting from the late 1970s and with Studebaker going under and other industry lessening neighbor. And, and disinvestment yeah. meaning resources are pulling out. Like, and specifically yeah. resources and people. And I think probably the hardest parts of, of South Bend neighborhoods as a whole and specifically ones of that age. So that's near West side, near Northwest, Southeast side uh, is that Properties that take a lot of funding to maintain larger like wooden structures uh, become very difficult to maintain in times of economic distress. So absolutely, that as the, you know, kind of, unfortunately, so many things are real estate driven in some ways. And as markets begin to fall, people start looking for other opportunities if they can. Yeah. So the NNN is this kind of diverse neighborhood, uh, both racially and economically, but also has some of these challenges where funding has been pulled out over time and, and houses have fallen into disrepair. Uh, but the NNN that you lead is aimed at doing something about that. Can you tell us about the, the housing programs and the development side of what's going on in the neighborhood? Yeah, I've already mentioned it's a privilege to work there, and I have to say it's Near Northwest Neighborhood Incorporated as an organization is a pretty unique type of organization because it's a neighborhood-based nonprofit community development corporation. That's a mouthful. <laughs> uh, but it distinguishes itself from like a, a regular neighborhood association, which is often all volunteer run right. um, and is, is kind of, you know, often doesn't have a budget or staff in that it's built capacity. And I would say over a long period of time, it started with a group of neighbors really neighborhood association like in 1974, uh, wanting to band together and work towards the revitalization of the neighborhood as they saw the decline beginning to happen. So it built capacity and um, in the 90s was able to create, uh, to have enough capacity to have staff and have enough capacity to start doing its own development. Um, so now we have a three-part mission for the organization, which is providing affordable housing to low moderate income families. Uh, doing community engagement, building up, uh, de developing leadership within the near Northwest neighborhood and being an advocate for the neighborhood within the wider context. So specifically, you asked about the housing program yeah. and it's our most visible stuff, absolutely. And it's probably the stuff we get the most funding for uh, in partnerships like with the city. So, so in the last 20 years, we've been able to do, um, I would say 99% of our work has been a rehab an acquisition rehab program. So we're purchasing houses. So you're getting the houses that are falling apart. Yeah, we've never had to move a neighbor out of a house. It's always been houses that have been abandoned or on the market or in tax sale or about to, to enter like a demolition process with the city. So we're kind of scooping up the discarded home uh, and we're able to reinvest federal funding into it and 
do the whole shebang. Like to, our, our aim is to put low-income families into situations where ideally they won't have to do any major repairs to the home for 15 years. And it's been very focused on home ownership and again providing, well, both a wealth creator for that family, but stability for the neighborhoods. We've been very uh, intentional in that regard too about where the homes are. Um, and we're able to do a lot of times almost a gut job on the house. Yep. And then we sell the homes to, to families that income qualify. And income qualification is a HUD set limit at 80% area median income. So families who earn less than area median income are qualified to participate in this program. So to summarize, you're taking these old houses and you're able to get government funding and otherwise and, and take these houses and basically make them new, right? You, you leave this, the floors and the studs in the wall basically and then the houses are new and then you're able to sell them to low income families who are able to get into them. Um, it just as an experience of someone living in that, it's been interesting to see the stability that that brings to, to the blocks. If somebody would be curious about getting into one of these houses, uh, can you give us an estimate of what the, the income qualifications are? Sure. Uh, right now, so again, that's 80% that's of the area median income. It changes yearly. Uh, HUD recalculates, essentially. But right now, like a single person looking to purchase one of our homes would could not make more than 32000 I think it's $750. Okay. Uh, and a family of four could not make more than 52650 So they base it on the size of your family uh, and, and determine kind of what 80% of area median income. And if somebody were interested in that, that we, we actually do have a, a waiting list. We're able to impact four to five properties a year. We have some new construction as well. Uh, but we have some families, we have about four or five families on a waiting list right now, kind of waiting for, for the opportunity. So if you're interested, you can go to uh, the Near Northwest Neighborhood website and you can find out more information and get on the waiting list if you're interested in possibly getting into one of those homes. So I love that development is coming to the neighborhood. I love that there's this addressing of the challenges. But one of the things we've seen across the country and, and across the world is that oftentimes when, when life and investment comes back into a neighborhood, uh, life starts to return, then, then the property values go up, which is great for those who are able to own homes in there. But one of the other things that does is that raises rent values and it can force out people who have been in those neighborhoods for a long time who now can no longer afford to pay rent at the levels that that neighborhood merits. And this is a process that's known as gentrification uh, where people are displaced merely because the property values and the cost to live in a place increases and they're not able to, to increase with that. Uh, what is the neighborhood doing and what can we do as neighborhoods to make sure that life is, can come back to our neighbor, neighbors but that everybody has the opportunity to participate in that? I think this is an essential question, and I really hope that you all consider yourselves part of a community that helps decide what happens when we redevelop our neighborhoods. We grapple with, I mean, it's, it's, it's an easy shorthand way of, of kind of talking about success, right, is gentrification. Um, but really gentrification and the fear of gentrification speaks to what you don't want to have happen with development, which is that as you're stabilizing or revitalizing your own neighborhood, that you're not inviting everybody to have a, piece, a sense of belonging there or access to the resources that are gained. And so as, as development happens, um, or, or I would say we're very, we're very aware that kind of basic market forces are kind of the standard system on how things get redeveloped and basic kind of these systems that are in place, whether capitalist or, or real estate driven, aren't able to kind of 
take too much of a stab at that unless they, they kind of put in some subsidy programs. And those subsidy programs are limited um, and don't often hit the vulnerable populations that are impacted. One of the realizations we're having in our neighborhood, which I would say we are very much talking about, it's like, well, what if success? What if we are able to get to this point where this is, this is happening? And I would say, I, I oscillate. There are days I walk around the neighborhood and I'm like, this is never gonna happen. And when I started, when I moved in the neighborhood in 2005, anytime anybody said gentrification, I just laughed and said, we're not even trying to get close to gentrification. We're just trying to hit normal. Yeah. Um, and what's normal? But now I'm starting to recognize it's like, well, the economy has picked up a bit. We are moving towards maybe normal and normal could easily spill very quickly into success. And that's if you're not figuring out how to kind of control your own success, then that's likely going to be success for people of means, often from outside of the neighborhood. Um, so what we're looking to do, and we'll see if we're successful at it, is, is to kind of very quickly see what our role in that can be assuming success. We're still partnering with as many like friendly, private people interested in development. We really want to encourage as much as possible the neighborhood itself being able to take ownership of as much as possible so they can kind of claim their own destiny and shape it. And then we're recognizing our own roles that one of the things that we think that we may be able to provide like our most vulnerable is I th we think our most vulnerable are likely to be low income renters who are often having to move very quickly and, and kind of forced in situations of housing of last resort where they're paying high amounts of money for very low quality houses and apartments. So we're like, well, what if we can play more of a role in the neighborhood of providing high quality, but low level, I mean, low uh, rent, uh, apartment. So that's something that our organization is stepping into. Um, and it's and it's like the question for the community, right? We should assume success, but we don't want to leave anybody behind. Yeah. One of the things I've heard you say uh, a couple times now is you said gentrification and fear of gentrification. And what I'm hearing from you, and help me understand if I'm understanding you correctly, is that it's not just whether people are displaced but sometimes it may be that people, it's not moving towards displacement, but just the changes themselves can, can bring anxiety or, or maybe social, making people feel like they don't socially fit anymore and, and that that's also a concern. Yeah. Is, is that right? I, that's exactly right, Ryan. I, I, I've come to, to more and more understanding of this and this is ongoing. I mean, the, what is not happening. I mean, I think if you talk to anybody of any income in any situation, if you ask them what they want in their neighborhood, they're going to give you a pretty similar answer, right? They're going to want good streets, good sidewalks. They're going to want trees, parks, excellent quality housing. They're going to want amenities. Everybody wants this. But right now, there's a sense that as those things get re-added to your neighborhood or improved, there, there are folks, and I would say, especially those who are low income and vulnerable, that there's a sense of like, that's not for me. Even though that's what I want, that's not for me. And what creates that sense, I think, is that often the development opportunities that come along with those things aren't for low income, say renters or homeowners or families that have lived in those areas for long periods of time. Development often, it's very difficult to get development to happen without a house being demolished or somebody having to, to move aside. And that can happen over a long period of time like in our neighborhood, or it can happen very quickly as like it happened in the near Northeast neighborhood. And so I think if we can do this right, we start with 
the people who are there and helping them to kind of, and this is where I'm realizing more and more, it's like we have to help the families that are already there have some ownership of their neighborhood. And that might be actual ownership or that may be, you know, like just starting from the sense of like everything that is done is for them. So final question, how do we as just individual people, uh, many who live in South Bend and many who live in neighborhoods outside of South Bend, some of us who live in neighborhoods that face challenges and some of us who feel, live in neighborhoods that are already uh, full of vitality, how do we as individuals help to make sure that each of our neighbors uh, does feel like they are not out of place, that they have a place, that they have a community in our neighbors? How do we make our neighborhoods uh, more whole in that way? Yeah, I, um, this might be a different answer than I would have given you before, but I really... I think the, the words came to me as we were just singing the song, as we are coming up here, say like, what we need to do is to get rooted um, and to claim our places. And I think that folks who are on the run all the time, whether you're out consulting and traveling the world, uh, I think we're all very afraid to actually claim our places and claim our rootedness. You, you know, it's like, oh, I've ha I, didn't li I haven't lived in this neighborhood for 40 years. I can't you know, speak to it. I just moved here. It's like, well, every single one of us can claim our rootedness in our place. And what I mean by that especially is by building relationships. And those relationships don't necessarily have to be deep, but they have to be intentional enough that you're willing to look each other in the eye and say, we share this space together and I'm going to be your neighbor. And I think choosing to be somebody's neighbor is one of the most powerful things we can do. And it doesn't matter about income at that point. It doesn't matter about what they do. It's kind of like neighborhoods are the great equalizer. Like everybody you talk to shares the same place that you're from. And you've got a common, you've got common ground right there. And often you want the same things, right? Maybe yep. he's in quiet. Yep. <laughs> it might yep. be, you know, like you certainly don't want gun violence in your streets. You know, it's like the common ground of like, again, where it's like, what people want out of living together is often very much the same. But what, what you can do as an individual and as, a, as everybody, I think, is just assume your own rootedness or your desire to be rooted. And I think everything can grow from that. Awesome. Kathy, thank you so much. Can thank you guys you, help Ryan. me thank Kathy? <laughs> Love it. All right, uh, next we're gonna pivot a little bit from neighborhoods to talk about schools and just our city in general. Um, one of the things that was interesting for me is I grew up in a small community where you just kind of went to the school that was there. You went to your community school, you went to the community elementary and then the community middle school, and then you went to the community high school and then you went on and did whatever else. Uh, and maybe if you were religious, you went to the religious private school that was in town, and maybe if you were wealthy, you were able to, to do something more elite, right? And there wasn't much thought going into it. It wasn't until I came into South Bend and started learning and starting having my kids walk through this and seeing my neighbors' lives that I began to see that, that schools and education, the way we approach these things, really are uh, become issues of equity and justice. And school and education is one way in which some people get ahead while other people are left behind if we're not careful to make sure that we deal with that. So I am extremely passionate, uh, you'll hear over time, I'm extremely passionate about the South Bend Public Schools, the South Bend School Corporation. I have three daughters right now that are in, my youngest in kindergarten at Marquette uh, Montessori, which is a public school, um, and then my two oldest in sixth and eighth grade at LaSalle Academy, and I've coached uh, at LaSalle Academy, the soccer team, for the last 12 years. I could not be more proud of South Bend schools. In spite of all our challenges, we have lots of great successes, but I'm excited to have someone here to talk a little bit 
about our schools and then our city in general uh, as well. So uh, our next guest has spent 15 years working in the assessor's and, and clerk's office in the county until in 2015, winning the citywide election to become our city clerk. She's been our city clerk for the last three years from 2016 to 2019. And just this year in 2019, after doing a fantastic job as our clerk, joined South Bend Community Schools as the chief financial officer. Can you welcome with me Karima Fowler? Hey, friend, how are you? This is for you. Have a seat. It's good to see you. So Karima has been having a very busy night and took some time to be with us, so I am so thankful for her. If you haven't got to meet Karima, this is not going to be enough for you to get to know how awesome she is and the stuff that she's doing for us. Karima, before we get into talking about some of these questions about schools in the city, I need people to get to know you and who you are at your core. So the, the one story I need to hear from you, briefly, if we can consolidate it, is how did you find your way into public service, right? Because the story, as I remember, starts, you were like, what, 19 years old and doing housing investment in the city and finding your way into the clerk's office a lot and assessor's office doing paperwork. How did that lead you from that point into public service? Um, I'd say... Uh what led me into public service was the fact that um, I had the properties and when I would go downtown to the county assessor's office to find out what was going on with my uh, property taxes, um, I didn't quite like what I was hearing or seeing. So uh, I used that as an opportunity. So when things didn't go the way I wanted them to go in my life, um, one thing I know about myself is that I have to do be doing meaningful work. So I went right back to the office that I had the most issues with and got a job. There you go. <laughs> um, so uh, I would say my journey to public service started way before then. Um, as a kid, when I would go to church, I was the person that always advocated for people. And I was the person that, um, you know, if you needed someone to do anything, like I was the go-to person. Um, so I would say my career in public service started long before that. And even when I had the properties, um, the properties that I had, they were in low income areas. So most of the properties that I had, people couldn't afford to pay their rent. <laughs> yep. And I just let them stay there. Yep. Um, eventually that was not a good situation. Um, but I went to the assessor's office um, to serve. Um, and in that, it was probably the most rewarding work I've ever done. Um, if most of you are familiar with the economic downfall um, in 2008 with the um, property taxes and everyone in St. Joseph County, um, your property taxes went from one-third market value to 100%. So everyone was filing appeals. Churches, we, we lost tons of churches, tons of businesses, and uh, people were losing their homes. Well, I, at that time, was fortunate enough to be in that office. And I helped a lot of people. I advocated for people like myself and you all. Um, I even lobbied for new legislation for churches, uh, for their exemptions. Um, and looking back, I was very fortunate to be in that office at that particular moment in time because the impact. Um, at the time, the culture was, 
you would get shuffled from office to office. Nobody would take the time out with you and explain your property record card to you or what you were actually paying taxes on. So by me being in that office at that time, I was there to educate people. And I can remember we had lines from the county assessor's office all the way down the steps out the door. People were filing tax appeals. And I was the person that stood at the counter and helped each and every person, and I was there till 8 o'clock at night. Everyone wanted to go home. They said we, weren't, we were not paid to do anything extra. We were not accountants. How many of you in here that own a property can afford a tax accountant? Probably not many. So I was that girl yep. that was there to 8 or 9 o'clock at night until the line was gone. I love that. And what I love about you, among many things, is justice is at the core of who you are, right? Like, you see what it's like to be the little guy trying to figure things out, and you, you, though you could move on and just leave that behind, you say, like, I, you have this compulsion in you that has to do something about it. And so something as simple as, like, filing paperwork, as simple, I mean, as boring as filing paperwork or doing taxes, uh, some of these things really are justice issues for our community and for our neighbors. And the thing I really appreciate about Karima is her consistent willingness to step in and do something about it. So given your, your core to do something about things, to, to take moves in your life and your career, to, do, to accomplish things that need done, how did you find yourself going from the clerk position when things are going really well and you're doing that, to finding your way into the South Bend schools in the midst of a lot of transition? <laughs> Wow. <laughs> um, at times, I'm still asking myself that question. <laughs> However, I'll go back to um, knowing myself and uh, knowing that I have to do meaningful work. Um, also, looking at problems as opportunities, but personally wanting to grow. And in my growth, um, still wanting to grow and to learn not get complacent, um, but how can, I, how can I continue to grow, learn, and take that and help other people? And so that's what it's all about for me. It's not about money. It's not about any of those things. I mean, because if, if you... <laughs> the, um, some things you can't put a monetary value on. Yeah, yeah. So that, that's kind of, in a nutshell, how I got there, because I'll be quite honest with you, I was the only candidate on the ballot this time that was unopposed. Yeah, I um, saw that. <laughs> I led the ticket in May, had the most votes, was unopposed, and could probably keep that job as long as I wanted. And to be quite honest, when you're voted in for public office, whether you step foot in that office or not, you're still going to get a paycheck. But while I was there, I gave it 110 percent. Um, however, I know that I can do more. Yeah. And what, what is it about our public schools that matters? What, if you say, like, why should anybody care about our public schools versus just caring about schools or education in general? Is it, for you, how would you voice that, the importance of our public schools? It's huge. Poverty is, I mean, education is probably one of the only things that can get you out of poverty. And I think for me as a leader in city government, a lot of people ask me, was I crazy? Why would you go from a winning brand to a losing brand? 
people said things like that to me. Mm. For me personally, I think it's really important for people that have power and some level of influence to use that in a positive way. I think it's important that people need to see someone that they respect, that they voted for unanimously, and um, led the highest ticket go somewhere that's considered to be a felling brand. I think people like that need to go in those places. So you mentioned the, the failing brand perception, right? And our schools have that, have had a negative perceptions around them. Where do you think that that perception misses the mark? Where do you think that there's more uh, diamond in the rough, if you will? Where, where are the reasons to celebrate right now in our schools that maybe people are missing in these stories that they're telling? Probably over half of the people in this room that graduated from South Bend Public Schools and nobody's really getting out there and telling that story. I'm a product of South Bend Schools. I graduated from Riley. Um, there are some amazing stories about people that live here, been here their whole life. They graduated from South Bend Schools and they're amazing people. And we are all missing the mark by not telling those stories. And no one's telling it. And I, and I think sometimes we are. But because people like sensational things, yep. and the media, their headlines are really just to get you guys to click. Yep. And if you click, you're sold. So I think more of us really need to tell the story about all of the great people that have gone through South Bend Schools. I think as an outsider, right, so I came from the Fort Wayne area, so I, I didn't come through South Bend schools, but my kids are there. And I think one of the things, similar to how I perceived schools, was you just went to the school in your community. If you were a teacher, you just taught at the, at the school in the city, because that was the school that was there, right? One of the things I love about South Bend schools is there are other schools in the area, and some of them have... Uh, much less toxic stories told about them, right? So all of the teachers that are in our South Bend schools probably could be teaching for another school system right here in the area without even having to move their houses. They could be teaching somewhere else, oftentimes making more money in situations that are uh, more desirable stories told about them, right? So the people that are in our South Bend schools, the teachers through and through, I've had so many teachers that are there because they want to be there and because they care and want to make a difference. And that's one of the stories that I just wouldn't have seen from the outside. I'd be honest with you. If you're there, it's because you care. It's not because right. you need to pay your bills. If you're in South Bend schools right now, given you know some of the things that's going on, you are there because you care. It's, it, it's service, yep. it's service, and I will tell you, we have amazing staff, from the teachers to the people in food and nutrition, right on down to the custodians. They are amazing, but they aren't celebrated. Yep. They aren't appreciated. And um, I think that's part of the problem. Um, and, and I think it's a cultural thing. You have to let people know that they're of value. When you think about your competitive advantage, and what is it that other districts or that you have that other people don't? I will tell you, there are tons of districts that are just like ours that aren't doing that bad. You have to let people know that they're of value. I'm not gonna send my kids somewhere if I feel that they're not valued. 
Good. One of the challenges we do face kind of is in your wheelhouse, in your mm -hmm. area, uh, article came out, there's a funding challenge that affects our, our schools, right? And so part of the funding is that as students go elsewhere to other districts, they're taking the state funding with them. One of the challenges in that is when you're the public school system, you have to be able to take care of everybody. So you have to have buildings capable of, of serving all of the students in the district. And when students go elsewhere, then you have half empty buildings, which is different from the smaller schools that can start adding and expanding their building just little by little as they need to, to embrace people, right? So it's harder to be that established source losing this amount of money. And then on top of that, there's this thing called the circuit breaker that's coming, right? Which is a change in taxes. Tell us about what that circuit breaker is if we're reading these stories and how it affects the schools and why we should care about that. Um, yeah, so there's a lot of misinformation out there and I think people just don't really understand how school funding goes. Yeah. Um, and like I said, we can give as much information to the media as we want. They're going to pick up the things that they want and a lot of times it's things that are that is sensational, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, However, school funding is mixed. It's mixed. It's two different things. Um, so you get a certain amount of money for each student. However, there's been... And that comes from the state? That comes from the state. And the Based federal on property tax money? Nope. Nope. Two, okay. Two, okay. two sets of funding. Walk me through it. <laughs> I'm walking through it. Because um, I want the people in this room to understand how yeah. schools are funded. Um, so there's a set of money that comes in um, per student. Okay. And... So you get a set amount of money per student. However, there's been legislation recently with school choice and all of that um, where the money actually follows the student. Money follows the student. So when you're losing students, if you lose 200 students, 300 students, that's quite a bit of money to the tune of, I mean, millions of dollars. Nice, yeah. So um, money follows the student where before... You got a set amount of money, and that's how you took care of your whole district based on your population. And you could um, spend that money however you want, want it in your district to make sure that the needs are being met. However, the way the funding mechanism is set up now, it follows the student. So if students leave, which is sometimes something that you can't control, that's less money you have. It makes it really hard for budgeting. Um, but then it, it turns into this equality situation where you have schools like, for example, Adams, who's at full capacity. Um, and so because they're at full capacity, because the money follows the student, they get more money. They would get more Got money it. than Washington Got students. It. Got it. However, Washington students may have the biggest need, but the money isn't there. Got it. You can't shift it around. You can't, you can't shift it yeah. around because it goes with the student. Right. So you have schools that have a lot more resources than other schools. Yeah. So you have to figure out how do you balance that out, right? And that's just within so far, just even within South Bend schools, let alone talking about comparable to other districts. Yeah, yeah. So the comparable piece to other districts come in with the property tax caps. That's the other way we get money from property taxes. So most of your urban areas... You figure, assessments are pretty low, right? Right. So when you're comparing us to Penn and people say, why are they doing better? Their, home, their average home in Granger, Penn Township, 
is $175,000. Average home in South Bend is $40,000. So go figure. You, so 2% of $175,000 is a different amount than 2% of $40,000. Yes. Right. So there you go. So yeah. again, the people that probably needed the most are getting less. So that's the formula. And um, so those formula, that formula, I would say this, um, from the national and federal government on down, um, it's really hurt public schools all over the country. If you go to any other urban area like ours, and you're comparing apples and apples, which I've been doing a lot of that since I've been in South Bend schools, most of the districts are very similar to ours. We're actually doing better than a lot of districts. They're very similar to ours. So what can we do as individuals or even as a church? Like, what can the average person do to say, like, we believe in the health of the public schools. We believe that every child deserves a dignity of a good education. Uh, what can we do as individuals to be able to work more towards that? Number one, help your neighbor. Let people know that they're of value. Secondly, if you can help in the schools, um, whether it's coming in and reading to kids, um, whatever that is, being a champion for South Bend schools, telling your story if you're a graduate of South Bend schools, if you're not a graduate of South Bend schools, but you know people that are graduates of South Bend schools, but just being a champion, that is one of the great things about, um, in my opinion, that's one of the things, um, I'm originally not from here, but I moved here and I graduated from Riley. But that is one of the things that makes South Bend unique to me. It's the pride from side of town to side of town. The Washington pride, out of sight. Yeah. <laughs> Adams pride, out of sight. Riley pride, out of sight. So... Um, that's the one thing about us that is, is amazing and makes us really unique. Um, so people should be able to tell those stories and help if you can. I love it. So one of the things, uh, if you're a part of South Bend City Church, if you're here regularly, we're going to continue to increase our involvement in the South Bend School. So look for opportunities that come, our, uh, come along. Uh, in just a sec second, I'll share a little more about that. Um, but on your own too, you don't have to wait for the church to do things, right? That's one of the things we always say as a church is like, if everybody's sitting waiting for us to give you permission to go and love your neighbors well, we're doing something wrong. So uh, get out there, connect to schools that are close to you and find ways to get in there and, and just connect with your neighbors. Can we thank Karima? Karima, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much, friend. Uh, I admit, I grew up in a small town where uh, there was just like the one school, right? You went to the local elementary school, then everybody proceeded to the same middle school and everybody to the same high school, and then whatever happened after that. Uh, if you were religious, maybe you stepped aside into the religious school, one of the religious schools in town, uh, and if you had some, some resources, maybe you uh, went for something a little more elite. But otherwise, it was just basically kind of the same system for everybody, and I didn't put much thought into it. So it wasn't until I became an adult and I started living in 
in my neighborhood and seeing uh, what my neighbor children were going through and, and then having children of my own that entered South Bend schools, did I realize that education can be a lot more complicated than that, especially in areas where there's more than one school system all within kind of close proximity to each other. It can get all kind of messy. And realizing that education and schooling is one of those areas that actually is an area about justice and equity. It's an area where some children are able to get ahead, where others fall further and further behind. And if we're going to love our city well, we have to make sure that we're advocating for all of the children of our city. If you know me, you know that I'm an annoyingly positive advocate for South Bend schools. I've probably annoyed you in a conversation at some point in time along those. And I do not apologize for being annoying in that way. Uh, I have three daughters in South Bend schools. My daughter, Michaela, is a kindergartner at Marquette Montessori, uh, which is a public Montessori school. And then my older two uh, are sixth and eighth grade at LaSalle Intermediate Academy, one of the magnet schools. Uh, I would like you to welcome our guest today. Our guest is a graduate of IU Bloomington and Indiana State University, where he earned his PhD. Uh, he spent 22 years now in education in schools across Indiana. In June 2017, he came to South Bend Schools as the director of human resources. And as of just this July 2019, he completed his transition to become the superintendent of the South Bend Schools. If you can welcome, uh, help me welcome Dr. Todd Cummings. Hey, thanks for being here. Here you go. Of course. Thank, thank you, Pastor Ryan. Thank you, Pastor Matt. Thank you, everyone. Yes, it is I'm so to great to have you here today. I've been looking forward to this conversation. Um, I've been a fan, like, watching everything going on with the South Bend Schools and just curious uh, to see what comes of your time. And, and it's been three months in. But first of all, I just want to start with a general question before I dive into that. Why do public schools matter at all? Like, why, why do public schools matter any different than just schools at large? Sure. For me, I'm a product of public education. And public schools matter because they educate everyone. And hopefully, if they're done well, everyone has the opportunity to exceed and excel and live their best lives. Is that Aretha? She's, she's hitting that note. All right, you get it, girl. All right. <laughs> I appreciate that and agree with that. All right, so if we're trying to become create great schools for everybody, uh, their leadership obviously it determines whether that happens or doesn't doesn't happen. Um, you've come in; it's only been since July, but you've already begun to to shake things up. Uh, things I've noticed: there was a major restructuring of administrative leadership, um, elevating voices. Uh, like Nathan Boyd, who's been a great principal in the system through the years, uh, bringing in Karima Fowler, who is here with us Thursday night. Uh, you've also introduced a new lunch partnership, which has kind of revolutionized that. You've introduced some major busing upgrades, uh, both to like make the system more effective and uh, safer and more transparent. Cameras on the buses, parents can watch their children on the buses now, uh, which is pretty great. My perception through the years, though, is that there's been, in our school system, there's been changes that come at the top, you know, one new superintendent after another, and changes maybe that come to the bottom of what teachers and students are doing, uh, but that we've often tiptoed around changes in the middle, like upsetting the systems in any way. Uh, what convinced you that just jumping and going for it was the right move? Sure. There's, there's a lot question. to that question. <laughs> so I'm one of the few internally hired superintendents in probably 15 years. And so having entered in human capital and then being deputy superintendent, with the data I had access to, I had a pretty good feeling of things that needed to change. 
And so one of the things that we constantly heard was that downtown, the downtown office was too big and that there were redundancies. And I was able to see that. I knew that I needed a team that was going to be agile and was going to move fast because we're in a spot where we needed to act with a sense of urgency. So I entered the district with three key goals. One, literacy, ensuring that every single student is reading on grade level. Two, ensuring that the district is financially sustainable. And three, empowering our students. So ensuring that our students were reading, our teachers were able to grow, our non-certified staff were able to grow into teaching positions, and that we were giving all of our students opportunities. This year, we'll graduate our first cohort of seniors who graduate at the exact same time with their associate's degrees. And you say, well, that's really amazing, and it is, but that should have been happening a long time ago. Ben Davis High School in Indianapolis graduated 93% of their students with associate's degrees. We have to do better. And so knowing that the district needed to pivot and move and change really quickly, I knew that I needed a team that I could trust that would move fast. And one of my pieces of my theory of action was to hire great human capital, hire great teachers, hire great principals, and act with a sense of urgency. And so central office needed to be redone. We've done that. We continue to do that. We continue not to fill positions. We continue to combine positions two into one to save the district money. We need to ensure that resources are flowing from the boardroom to the classroom equitably. And we can talk about that in, in a second. And then food and nutrition. As I was becoming superintendent, I interacted with students and parents, and two things came up. They said, you have to communicate better, and you have to fix food. And we've done both of those things. We have built a new communications department, and we have transformed food and nutrition. And whether I'm superintendent for five years or 25 years, we're going to get food right. We're going to feed the babies that we have in our schools. Number one, when you provide healthier, better alternatives, students learn, they're happier at school. But we have, I have students that go home and have food desert issues. I have students that this is their meal of the day. I have to get that right. If I don't get anything else right, I'm going to ensure that students who have food scarcity issues are going to get fed at night. And so we've upgraded food. We are about to launch a grab-and-go option where students, whether they're athletes or they're staying to be tutored or they have food scarcity issues, can grab food to, to take home. And I'm really proud of that. Yeah. Love it. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. One of the things I've heard you say is that food is a social justice issue for you. Uh, I admit, when I saw the, the tweet of the first day, the new food options are introduced, there's... Uh, uh, a buffet bar at each cafeteria now that is just a fruit and vegetable bar. And you can see the pictures of it. It's just overflowing with fresh bananas and, and, and all sorts of fruit. I saw that and, and I got choked up, guys. Because um, for me, I see that and that, that's dignity uh, for those students. Right. Do you see that the same way? Absolutely. I was at Washington High School when um, we, we first unrolled it. And the fact that students said that they, you know, can I go back and have more vegetables? Yes, of course. Can I go back and have more fruit? Yes, of course. But the fact that they were full and they were saying, you know what, I'm full. Students at all of our other high schools are buying lunch for the first time. And this was never about saving money. 
Switching food vendors was never about saving money. In fact, I didn't care how much it costs. I have to feed the babies that I'm responsible for. And I do want to come back to the fact that I call our students babies. And I get, people say that's great, people say it's not great, but I want to say this for me. The second that I don't see the nearly 16,000 students that we have as someone's child, grandmothers and mothers who send the best they have, there's not better students waiting somewhere else. These are the ones we have. And the second, oh, there's a whole, hang on, you want to hear the whole point. The second I see them as a student or a student ID and not someone's child, I lose my sense of way. I lose my focus. They're someone's babies. They're mine. And I'm responsible to make sure they graduate. Yeah. Thank you for that. Yeah. Uh, our South Bend schools have gotten bad public reputation over time for a variety of reasons. Uh, where do you feel that that perception is accurate? Where does it miss the mark? And, and where are there maybe reasons for celebration that, that just don't get out there? Sure. I think we've done our part in St. Joseph County to create economic disparity. We have not given everyone the equal chance that they deserve. We have not always been communicative. We have not always been available. We have not always been out listening to what the public wants. And so I decided we were gonna do that. I rebuilt my communications department. We do talks with Todd. It's the first Wednesday of every month. And the next one is this Wednesday. It's the early one, it's at 8.30 at Martin's in Erskine Plaza. We have decided that we're gonna do community forums. and. Other superintendents have had a group of students that they've met with, uh, like a student panel, and I've decided I wasn't going to do that. So I spend two hours of my week at varying lunchrooms, and I ask all of our students, how's it going? What do you want to improve the district? Because I want to make sure that it's not just 10 students from whom I'm, I'm, I'm hearing. And I've done everything they've asked me to do. I've stood in the rain of football games. I have gone to the prom. I <laughs> lunch with them. I've done every single thing my students have asked me to do. And I've done every single thing that the community has asked me to do because we want to ensure that we're listening, that we're agile, that we are meeting the needs of all of our patrons. We have not done a great job with that. And it is going to take some time to ameliorate and to fix that. I do a lot of my time just saying, I'm sorry. I'm sorry how we treated you. I'm sorry we were not easy to talk with. I'm sorry it's taken us 20 years to get, uh, to get transportation right. It's been 20 years. I'm going to get transportation right. It's going to take me some time, but I'm going to get it right. And so it's just a matter of listening and being available. And I can't hire enough communications folks to counteract the onslaught of social media. About 30% of it's accurate. Yes, sometimes we do dumb things. But to begin amplifying and highlighting the great things that we do, food. We have students that go to the Naval and the Air Force Academy. We have students that go to Cornell. We have students that go to Notre Dame. We have students that do really great things. I need folks who say, you know what? We're going to at least amplify the good stuff that's happening. So if you don't follow South Bend Schools on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, I ask you to do it, and I ask you to amplify the good news, or me, at Dr. Todd C. I tweet as well.
Yeah, I appreciate that you've owned the difficulty of our story because we have to start with honesty, I think, sure. in that. Uh, I appreciate the availability that you've put yourself in. So if any of you, as parents or community members, if you have issues, come to the Dr. Todd events and let him know because uh, he's asking for that feedback. Mm -hmm. So I love that we can, right. we can come and do it. And I love that, like you said, you're showing up at everything from hockey games to prom. Like, I don't know that I would go to prom if they're asking me. So, <laughs> so, so thank you for doing that. Uh, one of the other things I love about the South Bend schools um, is that it's an interesting thing in that there's so many different school districts in a small space, right? So mm -hmm. in the school district I grew up in, there wasn't. So if you wanted to be a teacher, you were gonna teach in that local school system where you were gonna move, mm -hmm. right? But here, you can live anywhere in the area and there's three or four different choices of places that you could get into teaching, right? So the thing that's impressed me about the teachers I've come across in my time as a coach and as a parent in South Bend Schools is that uh, it's people who could be working elsewhere and currently for honestly more money elsewhere uh, and maybe less challenges that are willing to invest in our students. And I think there's something very brave about that. Sure, and I'm grateful for my teachers and the hard work they put in every day. I wanna pay them more, but I'm really grateful for the, the, um, the work that they do every single day because without them, I mean, you certainly wouldn't need me, so. Yeah, I love that. And I think our teachers do need to get paid more too. So. Thank you. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Um, two people? Okay, I'll take two, it. Yeah. I'll take two. We got, we got enough two. teachers in here alone that should have been a clapping for pay raises. All right. Um, next, uh, our, one of the biggest challenges our schools are facing right now is funding. Uh, we're losing millions of dollars in different ways. Some of it is that uh, it's to law students. As For those of you who don't know, with education, funds come in through property taxes, which can vary greatly from one community to another. If if the average property value in one community is 40,000 and the average property value in other communities 100,000, 2% of 40,000 and 2% of 100,000 are very different figures, right? So that's part of it. Uh, part of it is students transfer, money goes with them. Uh, and then part of it is that property tax rules are changing. We got this circuit breaker thing coming and it's affecting our schools. Tell us about uh, the financial challenges and what, what we can do about that. Sure, so the, the district obviously lost uh, about 700 students this year. Part of that was just based on demographics, uh, people being mo mobile in, in St. Joseph County. The other thing that is happening, and we've known this for a decade, so this is not a surprise. Last year we cut, we cut nearly $8 million, and this year property, I just lost my train of thought with it, the train of thought with my <laughs> So the circuit breakers impact property tax values. And so Lake County and St. Joseph County have known for a decade, and this next year, let's say that you own a $100,000 home, your property tax is about 36 cents per thousand, you're, you will get a rebate of about $350. So what we're asking the community is, in a referendum, give us back the 36 cents. So we're not asking for more, we're not asking for less, we're asking for the 36 cents back. So the reprieve of $350 that you get on your home adds up to about $17 million. I, right? I can't cut myself to greatness. I firmly believe that. But if I have to cut $17 million out of my budget, and we've all read the Tribune, and you know, we've all heard how bleak it could be, it's going to be bleak. But I personally choose to stand against that. I'm not gonna give that a lot of thought because I think if we can be transparent in our finances, which I've committed to the community that we're going to be, if we can ensure that we're spending our money equitably, that we're ensuring that the schools who need the most resources are getting it, that, and we can make a really good case for how we're gonna be lean 
and efficient and ensure that money flows from the boardroom to the classroom, I believe the community will come out and say, yes, we'll give you the property tax caps back. And so that's what we're asking. We're asking to have the circuit breaker put back in our upcoming May referendum. But I will say, in order to get there, I, I want to be held accountable. The community for 20 years has said, you're not transparent with your finances. We're going to be transparent. We're going to lay the books bare. We're going to ensure that everybody knows where our dollars are going. We're going to start an efficiency study and ensure that we are draining every single dollar out of all the processes that, that we've done. We've never done that before, and now we're down to 20, on Monday, 28 weeks before the referendum. But we're going to share all that information with folks. I hear all the time. The district's hit money, the district is transparent. We're, we're gonna put an end to that. So the referendum will be a question on the ballot in the May primary next year? Yes, 28 weeks from now. All right, already, jeez. <laughs> All right, uh, if you're successful uh, in five to 10 years, what words will people use to describe South Bend schools? Oh, that's a really good question. I think that we will have done our part to eliminate economic disparity. We will ensure that all of our students are both college and workforce ready. I think that we will have taken steps to be bold and innovative in the offerings that we have for our students. So whether it's a transformation zone or it's an innovation zone, we're going to meet the needs of the community. And I think five to 10 years from now, hopefully we will start chip, chipping away at the, at the negative connotation of South Bend schools that will be lean, will be nimble, and that we will meet the needs of students and where they want to get a high-wage, high-paying job right out of high school, or they want to go to one of America's top-tier colleges and universities, we will equip them to be able to do that. And we'll spend our money equitably, and we'll ensure that every dollar that comes in goes to the students and the schools who need it the most. Love it. Thank you. All right, last question. What can we as individuals do, whether it's in South Bend schools or, or even people who live elsewhere, what can we as individuals do to help our public schools uh, and what, or even collectively as a church, what, what can be done to help it? Sure. just for the average person. Excellent question. So number one, amplify the good things you see on social media. So if you don't follow South Bend Schools on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram, amplify the good things that you see. Number two, in May, if you are a voter in St. Joseph County, I need you to vote yes for the referendum. I need the 36 cents back. Um, but I want you to hold me accountable on how we spend our money. You know what, you showed up at City Church, you talked about equitably, where are we with that? All of our back-end systems are all antiquated, so we've not put any money into HR finance, and so we're working really hard at upgrading all of our back-end software so that the public can see where dollars are going, so that you can see that we are spending our money equitably. So hold me accountable, amplify the good, good news. I need you to vote yes. And finally, if you have time or you're looking for volunteer opportunities, volunteer in our schools. Whether that is reading to students who need one-on-one -on -one time to read, or it is volunteering with the teacher to give a small group more attention, volunteering. Love it. Thank can you. you guys help me thank Dr. Cummings? Thank you. Thank, uh, thank you so much. I know, I know Dr. Cummings has to bounce pretty quickly here, uh, but next Wednesday night, again, look for those uh, talks with Todd if you have questions or things that you want to press with him on that. Uh, thank you again for coming. Uh, he mentioned the, the opportunity of volunteering in his schools. Those are things that are near and dear to our heart, and I can imagine that there will be ways that we collectively as a church get involved in that. But I want to just remind you once again that I don't want you waiting around for the church to tell you what things that you can do in your community. Uh, I want the people of South Bend City Church, we want to be people that are 
are just engaging our neighbors and the things that come up that God puts on our hearts. We do have a Facebook group called the South Bend City Church Collective, if you're not aware of that. And it's just a, a source for those grassroots movements, right? Like if you're uh, moved to go and get into your school and read, put it out there that you're doing that and invite somebody else to join you so that another kid has somebody reading to them as well. Or if you don't know what to do, you don't know where to begin, just check the collective out and see if somebody else maybe has put something out there that you can get involved in doing that with them. One other step we're gonna take as we continue to lean into how we can listen to our city well and care for our city well, uh, is we're gonna be participating uh, a week from Thursday night. So this Thursday is Halloween, a week later. Uh, we are canceling our normal Thursday gathering. And here in its place, we are hosting uh, an event and a series of events. The city has been hosting these community action group meetings. These meetings have been going on every month uh, to help the city talk through uh, the effects of, of the pain that's been felt after the unfortunate office and officer-involved shootings that happened earlier this year, recognizing that the people of the city need to ask good questions of each other and need to hear our concerns, and we need to ask good questions of those who have responsibility. And those people who have responsibility uh, also need, uh, we need to hear from them about what it's like for them to do what they do. So coming up is a community action group. It's Thursday, November 7th. It will be here in this space from 6 to 8 p.m. The city will be running that. We're just hosting it. But the topic of the night is understanding the Board of Public Safety and the disciplinary process for when things don't go as we would hope that they would go uh, for our law enforcement officers. It will just be a good conversation, a chance to hear from each other, a chance for us to understand how people are feeling and also understand the process that, that is in place uh, for our law enforcement officers as they try to do their job. If you have any questions about that, you can see me, but just know that that's coming down the road and it's a great opportunity for us to participate in the listening process in our city. All right, can you stand with me? I am so thankful for each of you. I'm thankful that we can be a church community that seeks to love our city well and that we can listen to the wisdom that's already out there for the people working hard across our city. May we be people that, that find out what's going on in our communities and have the courage to step forward and to act accordingly. Grace and peace be with you. Have a great day.